Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast with your host, Evan McElwain. Welcome back to the Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast. I'm Evan McElwain, Bowery Capital's Director of Growth. And this week, we're joined by Matt Cameron, CEO of Sassy Sales Leadership, to talk about early stage enterprise sales. Great to have you on the show, Matt. Great to be here, Evan. Excited to chat about my favorite topic, enterprise sales. All right, let's do it. So Matt, before we dig in, tell us a little bit about you, your background, and Sassy Sales Leadership. All right. Uh, long story long, I, I cut my teeth in the 90s. Yeah, I'm a little bit long in the tooth. Uh, working for large tech vendors, so like Hewlett Packard, uh, those sorts of companies. And over the first six years of my career, um, I was really lucky because I had the opportunity to work kind of each level of the channel, um, which for those of you in SaaS, this might sound a bit weird, but like the manufacturer, the distributor, the value-added reseller, the systems integrator. And it was really cool to understand that value chain because in SaaS, actually, we often sell to somewhere in that value chain and having that insider's knowledge of it is really helpful. And on that topic, for those of you who are in enterprise sales or are thinking about getting into it, um, one piece of advice I always give people is go and work for a large enterprise for some period of time. Just go and get to a year or two, whatever it is, because you're going to learn about politics, processes, and, and kind of what it's like to stand up a project in a big company because it's nothing like we experience in venture-backed startups, you know? Um, so that was the start. And then my claim to fame that people talk about is I was employee number six in Asia Pacific at Salesforce. So I ran the enterprise sales group from 2005 to 10, um, which was fun because back then selling SaaS to banks and invest, you know, uh, insurance companies was pretty hard trying to convince them to put their data in the cloud, um, which today is a generally accepted practice. Um, which kind of led me to this. So I, I run Sassy Sales Leadership. I founded it back in 2016. Um, and what we do is you build custom management development programs for large SaaS companies. We run also public virtual workshops where small companies send the go-to-market leaders. So if you're an AE manager, SDR manager, CSM manager, those sorts of things, um, we, we work with them. So that's that. And one thing I do want to tell people about, uh, Evan, is we have a scholarship program. So one of my big passions is following my values around um, belonging and inclusiveness and fairness and equity is that we have um, free programs for aspiring managers or managers who believe that they belong to an underrepresented affinity group. So check us out. Sassy Sales Leadership, uh, spelled like S-A-A-S-Y. Uh, and if you qualify, um, then we would love to support you in your journey. Awesome. Yeah, I love that. And uh, yes, really appreciate the the scholarship opportunities you all offer. And um, having been at a company that that's worked with you can, can certainly speak to the quality and just, just the level of coaching and leadership training you all offer. So that's, that's really exciting. Well, Matt, one last question before we dig in, what is one thing that no one listening to this podcast will know about you? So a bit of a twist on kind of a fun fact. Okay. Uh, yep. Well, uh, this, this accent is an amalgam, but I was born in New Zealand. Uh, and so I, I lived in New Zealand first, then I was in the US, a tiny uh, island in Malaysia, where we looked after a sun bear in our backyard for six months for the government. So that was interesting. But then we went to Australia and got all the way back. So you know, New Zealand, US, Malaysia, and Australia, all before I was 11. And as an adult, I've lived in 27 homes. So wow. what people wouldn't know is that's why I try to make friends really fast. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, I knew you traveled quite a bit, but I didn't know to that extent. Well, let's get into it. So I love to kind of start off with some of the basics just for anybody listening who is you know, new to sales, new to SaaS, making sure that we've got all of our kind of definitions in a row. So let's start with the really basic question of what do we mean when we talk about enterprise sales? Is this referring to a specific deal size or company size or industry or sales cycle length? You know, what, what are we talking about? Yeah, I'm going to say a lot of people categorize it like that. Uh, and, and I'm going to say it's neither, which will make people scratch their heads. Because when we talk about enterprise sales, the reason we talk about it is because we're segmenting our go-to-market teams, right? There's the enterprise group, there's a mid-market group, there's the SMB. That's why we do it. And why do we do that? The first principle is that the segmentation should be done on the basis of a team or a person's ability to achieve an outcome in that segment, you know? So whether it's like the salespeople or the post-sales customer support and customer success people, you've got different skill sets needed to address that segment. And it really comes down to the complexity of the relationship. So if we're talking sales, it's deal complexity. And my definition of the enterprise sales is, is one where there's a multi-party decision committee with an unpredictable sales motion. Right? And what I mean is that in an enterprise sales motion, you might have a, stale, um, a stage called like solution validation. Right? And for some prospects, that means a proof of concept, security penetration testing, references, blah, blah, blah. And for others, it's just going to be a really heavily customized demo, some references and some documentation. So you never know. And, and the enterprise salesperson needs to go into a complex context and quickly divine what is the path to success here? How do we demonstrate value, right? Um, and, and prove we can deliver. And you don't win or lose an enterprise sale by yourself. I always tell people we win and lose as a team. So you have multi-level selling, meaning you're, if you're early stage companies, you're bringing in the CEO, you're bringing in the chief product officer, you're bringing in the VP of customer success. That's different to SMB. So we win and lose as a team. Love it. Yeah. And that's, I like the flexibility that, that sort of definition as well allows, because depending on how you segment and, and what type of solution you're offering, those little nuances of like the, you know, exact number of employees that you're segmenting by or annual revenue, whatever it is, are going to be different. But thinking about it in that way of, you know, multiple parties making complex decisions, unpredictable processes makes a lot of sense. And I think that, that it also can encapsulate a uh, larger group of people. Something I think we should call out here is, is just because I'm selling to Microsoft doesn't mean I'm an enterprise salesperson because I might be selling a point solution that costs $100 a month, right? So you do not need an enterprise salesperson to do that. And I see that mistake being made all the time. Um, on the flip side, um, some founders will find they, they don't have go-to-market fit because they have a complex sale, like an enterprise-grade sale, for a product that only gets them $1,000 a year. Now your CAC customer acquisition cost is going to be terrible relative to LTV. So that's, that's a real trap. So um, that, that's why I don't think about the company profile when I think about segmenting my customers. I think about it in terms of the complexity of the sale. And the only nuance I'll add to that is sometimes you need to verticalize because it's such a vertical specific solution. For example, it might be healthcare or another highly regulated environment where you need salespeople and post salespeople who deeply understand that ecosystem. Cool. No, I like that as well. Cause you know, just on the, on the concept of CAC focusing on complexity that that's going to have a much higher correlation with CAC than just say 
oh, how big is the company that you're trying to sell to? Um, so I, re- I really like that. Well, one of the challenges that I often see is, you know, my whole world now is really seed, pre-seed, really early stage companies, um, some of which are, are selling into enterprise and, and have really complex, you know, solutions and complex sales motions to go along with those. You know, and sometimes these sales cycles themselves can get to be six, eight, 12 months long, sometimes even more. And what I see with these really early stage companies that are trying to get logos or trying to, you know, sort of figure out what their sales process should look like, they can't afford to wait eight to 12 months to figure out if, if they're doing it right. You know, in other words, they need their feedback loop to be much shorter than their sales cycle length. How do you think about this in the context of kind of the, the complexity of the enterprise sales motion, but marrying that with really early stage companies that, that don't have a proven process yet? Yeah. So there's two things. One is like, like when you're doing customer development and product development, you had a sort of a, a discovery process, a customer development, a hypothesis. You have a hypothesis. So to start with early stage, we need a hypothesis for what our sales process looks like. But where I see most founders make the mistake is they start inside the tent. And just like in product development, you need to go outside the tent and speak to somebody who has bought what you sell previously and understand what the you know marketing words buyer journey was like how did they know they had a problem what where did they go to figure out how to solve it and then specifically how do they figure out what to buy and then once you've got that and you can get that through your investor network like you'll know people who know people right and just talk to an actual buyer not not don't ask me don't ask like ask a person who's bought this in the past or is trying to solve this problem and then build a sales process, which is a hypothesis that helps people move through that journey in the way they would want to be moved. And then you'll have stage exit criteria, which means that I can't move from my qualification discovery phase to my you know, value proving stage or solution validation stage, whatever you call it, until I've checked these boxes, right? And then you'll learn over the first 12 months which boxes are necessary, whatnot, you know, you'll, you'll be at the end of the process, you'll still lose. And then when you do a loss review, you'll find out what else you needed. And that's probably worth calling out, Evan, is early stage companies rarely do this, but why would you not do an exit interview when you win a deal or lose a deal and find out what you can about your process? Because they will help you learn what you need to do. So one, the first point is, to your point about feedback loops, have stages with exit criteria. And if you're not meeting those exit criteria in a time that you think is reasonable or people aren't making progress, that's a good early warning sign. We'll talk more about reps later, I know, but that's really, really important. The second thing is have a deal quality methodology that goes across the top. So you got your sales stages, but what people often forget is there's another thing, which is, yes, we're showing progression, like we're moving through the pipe, if you will, but are we doing it well? Like, are we winning? Are we getting where we need to be? And that's where you'll hear um, a bunch of acronyms. And I have this little party trick I do. I'll see if you like this, Evan. I didn't tell you I was going to do this. But like, <laughs> everybody, every consultant in the world needs to make up a new acronym so they can sell you a book of consulting. So the ones that I've collected are in alphabetical order. Anim, Bant, B, Manter, Faint, Mandak, Midpick, Neat, Nutcase, RSVP, and Scotsman. These are all deal quality checks. Are any of those yours? No, I just can't bring myself to. No, so, you know, just so people know what we're talking about, you know, yeah. the basic one everyone knows is budget, authority, need, and time frame, right? Which is BANT, that's the original one. So whatever is right for your business, and by the way, 
There's no best methodology. There's just best for you. And that's why I always tell people, you figure out what's best for you. And as you're going through this process, if you're trying to figure out like how well you're doing, you know, you want to know, uh, for example, early on, um, you know, regardless of methodology, why do they do need to do something now? Why must they take action? Because most people listening to this will lose mainly to do nothing. That's the thing we lose most to. So why must they do that? And who cares about that, right? That's really, really important. And the second thing is, if they absolutely have to solve this problem, then why are they going to use us to solve the problem? Everything else is basically derivative of that, right? So that, that's how I think about it. And, you know, you, you started you alluded to reps as well. Cause I think when you're early stage, one thing that, and you're figuring out your process for the first time, one thing that I've seen can be a little bit hard to peel apart is when is it that my sales process is flawed and isn't quite optimized or when is, do I just have the wrong person in seat and early stage, you may only have one rep. So you don't have, you know, three, four, five, where you can kind of compare and see, okay, this person's rising to the top. This person's kind of at the bottom. How do you think about that? You know, as you're iterating, you've spoken a bit about how you can set your exit criteria, see how things are moving throughout, and also just borrowing kind of some, some best practices from buyers and getting their perspective. So you're not really starting from scratch. You're starting from at least a decent place of, hey, this is a hypothesis that 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 should, you know, make sense in theory. We'll see how it goes. But then how do you start picking apart sort of is it mm. the process that's the problem or is it the rep? Um, especially yeah. as well when I think about this, there's also this added layer of you don't really know how long your ramp time should be. So you don't even know like when should they start closing deals. Like how do you and this is a bit loaded, but uh, how do you start thinking through that? Yeah, well, the first thing is that you, you need some flexibility and you need to manage up with the board to say, look, we don't know what we don't know. We're going to start with some comparables, some similar solutions we're aware of, and we figured out what their sales cycles look like. So we think this is a nine to 12 months or whatever it happens to be. That's fine. But uh, sort of a precursor to this, for those of you thinking about hiring, if you can possibly afford it, hire two people for the reasons you said, it, Evan, you can figure out like if one's doing well, then maybe it's just the competence of the other, right? Because we don't even know early stage whether we've got a product that's enterprise grade. Like we might right. find out, goodness me, we need SOC 2 compliance from a security standpoint. We don't have that. And that's why we're losing all our deals. Right? Um, but if, even if you only have one, hire somebody who has sold to that buyer before is my advice to you because you don't have enablement resources. You don't, you know, you can't, you don't know how to train them. So just go hire somebody. And I'll tell you this, the early stage evangelical salesperson moves around a lot. So you're not going to find somebody who's been at a company for five years. You're not. You're going to find somebody who's been at a couple of companies for two or three year stints multiple times. Why? Because they go in early and they get a, you know, middle to lower end base with massive accelerators available to them if they hit their number. And that's what you need to do. You say, look, you're taking a risk on this, but if you believe in yourself and you believe in our product, you're going to, you know, we're going to pay you a telephone number, right? That's the person you want. Um, and then when you get that person, hope's not a plan. So every enterprise rep, you want to figure out whether they're going to be successful. They should be able to, within the first month or so, be able to build you a territory plan showing exactly how they're prioritizing their accounts and why what their sales map is. So, you know, every day, week, whatever it is, I'm going to do X many cold account outreaches, which I think will translate to this many meetings and this many opportunities and this many deals. They're completely wrong. We know they're wrong. But the fact that they're thinking about how to build their math means that they'll adjust and tune it 
you know, over the first few months when they learn and hopefully there's good bi-directional communication. Um, if, if they don't have a good sort of waterfall of activity to outcomes mapped out and territory prioritization, this is a big issue because they're basically just spraying and praying and hoping something will happen. And that probably brings me to three archetypes you should look out for, right? So in enterprise sales, in all sales, but in enterprise sales, I've seen three types of people. One is the engineer, and I like working with them because they're the person who always has the CRM up to date. They follow the sales process, you know, always next steps up. Everything's easy, they're predictable. And when they forecast something, it comes in. Um, however, they never sort of break out for some reason. The other type of person, I'll call them a designer, nothing's up to date. It's all about charisma. They're head on this because someone will fall in love with them or they won't. Uh, you know, they'll get this champion that takes them through. Um, but when they walk in a room, you'll know them because they're like, they just fill it with energy, you know? Um, and, they, and they take really interesting approaches and angles for attacking deals. Like they're very creative. Like, nah, they've asked for this, but we're going to tell them they need this plus this other thing, which differentiates us. And that's how we're going to win. So that's cool. I like, I like them, but they frustrate me because you can't forecast. Yeah. yeah. So the one you want is the architect, which of course is the person who has all that strategic and creative thinking, the charisma and all that good stuff, the likability and is process oriented. And they are rare, you know, and you'll find them because they, they'll, have, they'll be on an on-target earnings say at the hour of the company at somewhere between three and $500,000 a year. But for the last three years in a the row, they've made more than $800,000. Right now, we're never going to ask them. It's illegal to ask them, but what we can ask them is, "What was your quota, and what did you do the last three years, or last few companies?" And don't forget that if they're at early stage companies, they're high risk, and oftentimes it's the product. So if they have a couple of bum years, it doesn't matter. But I want to find that person who can tell me about the four or five years where they've done two x easy their quota. And in enterprise, that's meaningful, right? Because the enterprise quota is going to be no smaller than one and a half million or something like that. So if they're doing, you know, two, three, four million dollars in a year, you've got you've got yourself uh, you know, a live one. I love that. I mean, I think, and, and also just thinking through those archetypes and folks that I've worked with in the past, you you can kind of bucket them and and you know when you see them. Uh, and I can think to a couple really effective reps that I've worked with that fit that kind of architect um, archetype that you're, that you're speaking to. Going back a little bit, so rewinding to, you're talking about one of the things you mentioned is, that, you know, if it, let's say you can't only hire one rep. That's all you can afford to. You're oftentimes I see founders grappling with the decision of, do I bring someone into the fold that is coming from SaaS experience and try to teach them the industry? Or do I bring somebody with industry experience and try to teach them SaaS? It sounds like from what you were saying, it's almost a little bit of a different kind of spin on that. And I just want to bring in a rep that's sold to this buyer before. But even mm -hmm. within that, I'm thinking like, okay, does it need to be Oh, this this is a product sold to CFOs, or is it you know CFOs at investment banks, or you know like how can we like dig into that a little bit more? Yeah. I'm curious how you think about the buyer from a you know, who's the actual buyer persona versus like the type of industry that you're selling into. Yeah, let me lift it up a little for a second. I'll come. I'll will answer the question. The first thing is, I think the question is not SaaS versus industry. I think it's industry knowledge versus enterprise sales experience is the question. Mm. I want to take SaaS off the table for a second. I'll come back to it. People always ask me that. Can I just hire someone out of industry? Well, no, because I can't teach you how to be an enterprise salesperson in six to 12 months. I can't. It mm. takes a decade to be really good, you know, and, and you start being um, dangerous after about four or five years um, of, of, you know, mid-market sales and learning about the complexity, the politics and how you get stuff done. Like you, it just takes that long. Um, and so uh, don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, I'll hire someone who's actually, this happens all the time. The persona I sell to, I mean, they'll be credible. I'll just hire them and teach them how to sell our stuff. 
No, you won't. That'll fail. They will be very good in customer success, by the way. Excellent choice for customer success because they have the empathy of the persona. And and why I don't care about SaaS is SaaS is just a commercial model, right? And it's very easy to teach people how how you negotiate a SaaS contract. That's Mm. that's just basic knowledge that you can acquire, right? You don't need need a hundred at-bats around that, Um, you know, and in a slightly different mindset about the fact we care about recurring revenue. So I think the question is, Industry experience versus sales skills. Coming to in the, the type of person, if I'm selling to uh, a product in it that, that only relates to institutional banking, it's not you know it's not relevant to anybody else. It's literally what they do, uh, portfolio analysis type stuff. Then I'm going to say hire somebody who's sold to that persona before because you're going to make an idiot of yourself when you don't understand the distinction between you know the retail investment side of the bank. Um, you know, the, the equity analyst, equity research, blah, 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 you know, and, and again, can I teach that, that example? Yeah, probably. But it's, if you're in a large company, go for it. Cause you've got an enablement team, you've got an onboarding Academy, you can, you can bring them up to speed really fast and give them a fire hose reinforcement, you know, buddy system, but we're talking startups. Right. You don't have that same luxury of, oh, let's try it for a year. Let's take forever to ramp. And if we fail, like, no worries. We've got all these other business lines. Like, this is it. This is your at bat. Oh, and, and they look, and frankly, they will succeed. Usually you get a large public listed company that's got, you know, a team of seven in enablement, right? They're going to make you successful fast, but we don't have that. So, right. so, so what I'm saying is pick somebody who already understands the glossary of terms, right? And, 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 you know, particularly in complex and regulated environments like healthcare and finance um, and go that way. But the real thing is don't ever make the mistake of thinking you'll teach somebody how to sell who has, and this is my favorite, I'll use old man language, a Rolodex, for those who don't know what that is, a big network in the industry. That's the biggest mistake you'll make because my experience is the people they know in the industry, what percentage of them are ready to buy and have a need to buy this year? really small, right? So don't think that's the key to success. It's not. Um, but what they do need to do is, is know how that ecosystem works, right? And what's important to them. And especially, I think, as you think about sort of enterprise sales and the complexity of it, the number of decision makers actually involved in the buying process, your Rolodex maybe can get you that initial meeting. But unless you're really solving that need or able to navigate the rest of that org, it's not going to be enough to actually bring in revenue. So Matt, what are some of the other challenges that you see early stage companies face when they're trying to sell into enterprise? I could see limited social proof as being a big challenge. I'm curious what else comes to mind. Yeah, I I think to your point about limited social proof, your early early customers are going to be through your network, right? In particular, this is where I think you should be leaning on your investors, like previous portfolio companies that have made it big or whatever else. But your first customers are going to be warm connects because they have to take a big leap of faith and don't underestimate the the personal risk of somebody investing in you right uh, especially if what you do goes into the workflow of the business because if it fails then the change management around that is a, is a big uh, issue but um separately i think that early stage companies really need to understand the investment needed for enterprise sales and educate the board, right? Because they tend to underestimate the complexity of getting a deal done in a large company and the politics. And some of the folks listening will have heard the term happy ears. And this is when the rep overestimates the importance of having a supporter in the account. 
right? And I talk about the lone nut in the corner, right? He's all excited about what we're doing, right? We're like, we're going to win this deal because Johnny said, you know, like, but to get a really big deal, you need to buy in across multiple people who've got competing priorities and agendas. And most startups don't actually map that out uh, and then address the needs of each constituent uh, differently, right? It's very, very important that you take the time to do that. I I think, and a good example, in a a startup CRM, I'll often see a field which has DM, which stands for decision maker. In enterprise, there's no decision maker. There's a panel of people who have competing priorities and agendas that you need to bring aboard. So if you have a thing that says DM or meeting with DM, that's ridiculous in the context of enterprise, right? Um, And so following on from that theme is, is getting... Managing up again, a theme I'm going to harp on about, about how long it takes to get an enterprise rep productive. Because to your earlier point, right, it's like five to six months before they really start getting some traction. And they may not end up on a full quota until Q4. Mm. And everyone needs to understand that and hold the line and have a CEO and founder and board that don't freak out when in six months, you know, they're not doing, you know, 100 grand ACV every month because that may not happen. Uh, depending on on that. Um, and the last thing is, I, I, think, I see people thinking that the reps can just go off and sell themselves. Now, you want an evangelical salesperson who is just used to having no resources and getting on with it, 100%. So they build their own slide decks, they write their own documents, they respond to their own RFPs with the support of other people. So if you're selling something that's technical or complex, then they have to be partnered with a subject matter expert. And a lot of founders don't think that through. So early days, it, it'll probably be someone from the dev team or product mm-hmm. that actually has to get involved pre-sales. And they're like, oh, this is a distraction. So again, founder, CEO, executive team, you need to set expectations and make room for people to be involved in there. Because at some point, you're then you're going to buy, uh, invest in a pre-sales engineer or a solutions architect that will support sales. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more because there, this is all happening sort of in parallel with typically someone, a company transitioning from that founder-led sales motion and actually trying to like give more of that to the individual rep who's going to be owning a quota, carrying a bag, and then leveraging the CEO more strategically throughout the process, like like you were referring to earlier, kind of bringing them in when it matters, um, or or to you know map map your C-suite to their C-suite, whatever it may be. If you think about some of the early stage reps that you've worked with that have done really well, I'd love to just hear more about how they've leveraged the rest of the team internally. I think there's a fine line between being overly reliant or, you know, kind of punting everything to your CEO or the rest of the team and, mm-hmm. uh, and using them the right way and strategically. But yeah, I would love to just hear more about um, best practices. What's the right way to do it. You're, especially when you're kind of new to the org, you're still getting to know everybody, but you also want to be, you know, maximizing the chance of, of the team's success. Well, yeah, I, I would to start with very early on, part of my onboarding would be to work with the founder or whoever you're reporting to, to say, hey, listen, as I think about building um, uh, you know, a capture team, they often call it like a win, a bid team for these large deals, who in the organization is best placed to, to make an impact and to contribute? And you get the names and then you meet with them one-on-one and say, hey, I understand, blah, blah, blah. So how do you think about your ability to contribute to these deals? When should I be calling? And just learn so you don't, you know, make an idiot of yourself as you're seeking support. Get that figured out, figure out who your allies are going to be, invest in those relationships so they care about you, right? So when you ring them on the Friday at 7 p.m. and freak out about some deal that's meant to close on Monday, they'll help you, right? Um, and then uh, as they think about their accounts, it's sort of about setting up your deals well, they need to understand the hierarchy of influence within the account. I don't mean who reports to who. I mean, for your specific decision, your deal, what is the hierarchy of influence? And then sit with your internal team and go, okay, 
here's how I've mapped it out. You know, I've got Jane Stevens over here. She's the CMO, blah, blah, blah. She's the approver. She doesn't want to be involved in this day-to-day, you know, and then so forth and so on. You map out all the buying roles. And then as a team, you decide who are we going to map to whom and when are we going to make those connections? And a mistake a lot of people make is I'll say they're not keeping their powder dry. If you're going to use a VP or a CEO, hold them back as something special and use them as leverage to get access higher up the chain. And, and, you know, the thing that I'm saying to people at the moment, which says working very, very well is when you've got a gatekeeper or a project person who's been told to go and find a solution, they don't want to give you access. So one of the techniques you can use, which is good for them and good for you is to say, listen, I just wanted to share with you why these sorts of engagements fail. Oftentimes they fail through uh, change management issues because we don't have the CFO's buy-in, the financial controller and the blah, blah person. So for me to best support you to make sure that should you choose to work with us, that this actually is successful, you and I need to figure out when to bring these people into the process. And it's such a different conversation because I'm not saying, hey, I want to meet your CFO. No, I'm telling you why you're going to fail if you don't bring your CFO in and let's partner on the right time to do that. And that works great. And then you give them something special. So, well, listen, if your CFO is coming, well, I'll, I'll bring in my CEO and so forth and so on. I really like that. And I, I also see one of the challenges too, when you think about, you were talking earlier about verticalized solutions. And oftentimes in enterprise, that's where things go, especially in regulated industries where there's a lot of very industry specific, either jargon or process or regulation, what have you. Um, and oftentimes, the the it, it is the founder CEO that comes from the industry that has a lot of the industry expertise. Yep. Hmm. You know, do you do you see this all also seems connected with getting the rest of your sort of pre-sale support in order in order to actually free up those other kind of bigger players internally for you to leverage strategically. So is you know part of this too just seems to make sure you have if you need a pre-sales engineer or if you need to you know use someone on the more technical side of the house and loop them in that that's sort of the foundation that's going to allow you to free up these these other you know c-suite folks or vps um for later on yeah and i and look early stage again because I, I i can be practical here knowing that you've got few resources um, one of your best subject matter experts is going to be your post-sales customer success leader or, or, or account manager, depending on how you frame it. Um, so, you know, get an agreement when and how you can involve them in a pre-sales process. And, and here's the thing, make sure that, that there's a good gate around the qualification of the opportunity because they have limited time, right? Mm-hmm. So make sure you're using them when you think you're sure this is a winnable deal and it's going to have the maximum impact, right? Uh, and I look, I've been in many situations where we've been competing against far more able teams, much, much bigger teams, far greater resources. And the reason we win is twofold. One, we understand the account better and we're able to change the, the criteria in, in, in the weighting. But number two is we use people surgically uh, in a way that engenders trust, so, well, this is the human that will be working with you to make this successful afterwards. And she's going to tell you the most common reasons these things fail and some best practices for making them successful. You know, I, and I think that that's rarely done um, except by the best enterprise sales organizations or the more mature ones. So early stage, if you're competing with other startups and you follow some of these simple best practices, you're going you're gonna to win an outsized proportion of deals because people just don't have this knowledge. And so let's dig into other sort of strategies or tactics that you like to coach on for early stage founders and sales leaders that are 
that are doing this, right? That are selling to enterprise. We've talked a lot about sort of not underestimating the complexity of these deals and of the buying process, making sure that you're very thoroughly mapping out all the different stakeholders on both sides. How can you, you know, map in that and uh, accordingly multi-threading? Um, what are some other ones? You know, you see sort of account-based marketing and, and sort of account-based approach that just seems to be stock standard nowadays. Um, yeah. Are there certain channels that you like to coach? I mean, uh, yeah. curious, just yeah. like open up the conversation more broadly. Well, I, I think the first thing is, you know, like you say to the kids, it starts with eating your vegetables, right? Doing some stuff that's good for you and the account that you don't want to do. And um, some of you, some folks, if you Google um, uh, Home Depot teardown, I did a thing with Jake um, Dunlap at Scaled uh, not some months ago, where we show exactly how we do account research at an enterprise level. And if you understand the account and the people, if you're selling to a publicly listed company, you should have read the earnings release, the investors docs, looked at what the competitors are doing, right? Most people don't even do that. Look at what their competitors are doing. And almost no one does this. What's their customer experience like? And then move from the company level understanding to the departmental level and then drill down to the individuals, right? So if you turn up to a competitive environment, Without committing to that discipline, then you're going to be playing checkers when the game's chess, right? If you're competing with an SAP or an IBM or a Salesforce or one of those mature companies, like this is what they do. And there's no reason we can't do it. It's not expensive. It just takes time. And if you don't have someone inside the organization that's sort of familiar with this, go get them an advisor or a mentor or a coach who's done this to sit up to be the angel on their shoulder and just coach them through this process. And you'll be a long way ahead. If you do, it takes time though, right? But it's it's just the the it is outsized returns in sort of the every hour you spend researching these accounts. And when we say ABM or account based, it means so many different things, right? Um, and so I don't think we want to spend, we could spend an hour on. Let's not do that. But you as a rep need to deeply understand the motivations of the individuals. Secondly, everybody thinks in the abstract. You know, it's almost like we're thinking through the lens of our sales process or whatever else, but, but just put yourself in the shoes of the stakeholder and imagine what it's like for them to be asking for $150,000 for this initiative. And that's why I say it's really good to work at an enterprise for a little while, because then you know what it's like. It's like, you're putting your neck on the block. You're mm. saying to your boss, we're going to invest 150K. This little startup is not going to go bust. Uh, they're going to deliver this ROI that we're promising. So what are the political personal risks, right? And why... Why would you, if you're in their shoes, take the risk to do this versus do nothing, right? And right. then probably the last thing I'd say is you really want to be a Sherpa for your initial contacts, right? So many of these folks will never have bought this stuff before. So they don't know what to do, right? So what you want to do is help them navigate it with a really good, and you've heard me say this before, Evan, a strong, mutually agreed plan, right? They may not know how to get a project stood up in their company, depending on how long they've worked there, right? So you need to guide them and ask them who else we should be asking to figure out how to get a deal done. Right. And uh, that's probably it. I'd say. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the mutual agreed plan. I mean, that's huge. I, you are the first person that ever introduced that to me and, uh, and still preach that all day long to, to the companies in our portfolio, because it really helps identify gaps, right? Okay. If, if they haven't bought this before, there are going to be steps of getting that done that you'd rather proactively uncover so that you can go figure them out as opposed to have come up, you know, the day of, and, and then all of a sudden your, your deal's delayed. Um, let's talk about politics a little bit more, you know, as you're describing, you know, putting yourself in their shoes, they're really going to bat saying, Hey, you know, give me this budget. Here's the ROI. 
it's making me think about the fact that most of these ROIs or business cases, the big thing that they're missing is the internal cost, right? Whether that's internal political capital that your bot, your champion's using, whether it's internal resources and time that that's being taken for implementation or even just being taken for the decision-making buying process um, more broadly, um, it seems like that's a big miss. If, if, you're, if you're not taking that into account, of course, the ROI and, and everything else is going to look amazing. So why, why wouldn't the deal close? But then once you start peeling those back, you can start to really see, okay, where are the risks in the deal? And what are the reasons why somebody might say no? And they might stay with the status quo of, of kind of doing nothing. Is that fair? Like, is that a fair assessment of reality of what's going on in these scenarios? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and look, depending on what you sell, you need to figure out where you are on a two by two matrix. And, and the, the axes are trust and, and competence, right? Technical competence around whatever you're selling. And if you're selling something like, you know, let's say you were selling an e-signing document and the use case literally was just signing documents, nothing fancier than that, wasn't embedded into a product, it was just that. Well, if you're technically brilliant and understand it backwards, then you can sell that product, you're fine. I don't need to trust you as an advisor, right? It's like, okay, you know what you're talking about. But if you're selling something that requires change management or changing the way we do business or digital transformation or something like that, then not only do you have to really know your stuff about your product and the ecosystem around it, but I have to think that you understand my business well enough, which is why I talked about the company, their competitors, and their customers. You have to understand that enough such that I, I do accept you as sort of a consultant. Every enterprise rep that I've ever seen be really successful is an expert in something that their customers care about. And I, you know, they wouldn't consider them a salesperson so much as a consultant they get for free, which helps me, you know, deliver on my OKRs or my key result areas uh, by leveraging their technology, but this is the person I would call. And I'll give you an analog. In really large companies, they have procurement category managers. So somebody who is responsible for uh, software, for example. And so a line manager will say, listen, I've got an accounts payable uh, or accounts receivable issue. I need to shorten it by 20 days. They'll go to the software person. Is there a software solution for this? And the software category manager I'm on it. Let me research it for you. And they already have relationships with Gartner and Forrester and they go to all the conferences and they'll come back and say, yeah, here's the category of software that solves this. These are the top five vendors, right? And I will partner with you in figuring out how to build an RP, blah, blah, blah. That level of consultancy or, and trust is where the enterprise salesperson wants to get to, right? That's, that's the ideal, right? And, and understanding whose opinion matters in the company is critical to success. And that goes back to your earlier point of what type of rep you want to bring on. Because if they don't know the industry, if they haven't sold to this person before, if they don't understand their business, then they're going to have a really hard time building up that trust to be successful. Yeah. And I think come back to that definition we had at the start, because a lot of people are called enterprise reps. And quite frankly, they're not uh, based on the definition that I, that I gave you. And no offense to the folks that are you know, doing something, but, but, but it's probably better categorized based on the complexity of the sale and the, the change management impact it has as more of a mid-market sale. It's, you know, it's more than one or two people you're speaking with, but it's not dealing with these you know, shifting and changing and highly complex political situations. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Well, Matt, we've covered a ton. Are there any final thoughts, tips, tricks you want to leave folks with to summarize? Yeah, and this is mainly for the enterprise sales folks out there listening. If you want to be truly successful and have a long and tenured career in enterprise sales and sell the really meaningful deals, if you're going to sell a meaningful deal, then you're dealing with the C-suite, right? The, and, and by the way, when I think about a, an executive 
An executive, by my definition, is somebody who has the ability to allocate and reallocate money. So if someone says to you, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have budget for that, you're speaking to the wrong person. Because if I'm speaking to a C-suite person, they have massive budgets. And within a fiscal year, they can say, actually, you've convinced me that this should be a priority that we invest in this year. So I'm going to take some money from Peter over here, and I'm going to give it to Mary, because she's driving this initiative, right? Now, in order for you to do that, you must speak the language of finance. You must. So if I was any enterprise salesperson out there that doesn't have any financial training from, from university or whatever else, go get educated, right? There's a bunch of books about their finance for non-financial managers. And I'm sure there's a million online courses. But one of the things that differentiated me early is I did a post-grad in finance. And so I could, I could hold ground with CFOs on any topic relating to finance. I was no expert, but I understood the entire glossary of terms. And if they were to say to me, yeah, okay, um, you know, we've got to look and see if this business case makes sense. I would say to them something like, oh, okay, cool. Tell me about your hurdle rate and, and how big does the present value need to be to make it worthwhile? And, and you'd see their eyes open up and go, oh, I mean, now we're talking like peers mm. and you'll be in the 1% of enterprise reps who can have those conversations. Small investment, go do it. I love that. That's a great note to end on. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show, Matt. This, is, this was great. It's been my pleasure. All right, folks. Uh, as I like to say, keep it sassy and keep weaving the blanket of revenue that keeps us all warm at night. <laughs> Epic. And that is our show. So if you liked this episode and want to hear more, subscribe to the Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 